We are in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. As you turn there, I'm going to pray for God's blessing by the time in His Word. Lord, we are thankful that we can partner with others in the gospel, in proclaiming it and in discipling uh, new believers in it. I'm thankful, Lord, that uh, we as a church partner with our state association and Donna Gerald herself goes to uh, Standing Rock and ministers to these families and to these unbelievers and to Christians. And so, Father, I pray your blessing upon uh, the work that is done there. And I pray that as we partner by giving items and praying that, Lord, you would bless what we give uh, to change lives. I also pray that you would bless our time now as we study your word. And I pray, God, that you would uh, move us so that, Lord, we not just simply understand the words that Paul has written, but God, that they would change us and that we would be moved to obedience. And Father, I pray that especially today, because I know, Lord, it may be easy to understand what Paul is saying, but that's not enough to understand it. I pray, Lord, that we would live it and obey it. So I pray your blessing and I pray for your movement of your spirit. And I pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Philippians is about rejoicing in the Lord, as uh, this little boy is doing. And Paul even says this again as we come to verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul says, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Paul is not saying that he's writing again about rejoicing, although he has said that many times already in this letter. But he's about to share a topic with them that he has already warned them about. But let's review what we learned in chapter 2. In chapter 2, Paul said that we are to have an attitude that's like Christ Jesus. That our attitude is to consider other people better than ourselves and to consider others' interests in addition to our own. And he gave an example, Jesus, who gave up heaven to come to earth, who became a man, who died on a cross, who humbled himself in obedience even to death on that cross. And then the, God the Father exalted him. And then Paul says, there's some guys that you know that are examples of these godly servants as well. And so Paul himself and Epaphroditus, who was a Philippian, and Timothy, who was Paul's co-worker, who went from church to church to help Paul out. These men themselves were examples of how to have that attitude of servanthood. So Paul in chapter 2 says, if you want to have joy, you need a united church. And to have a united church, you have to have this attitude of servanthood, considering others more important than yourselves, and considering others' interests in addition to your own. As Paul writes now, he's going to tell us negative examples of godly servants. So ungodly servants. Uh, we are to be like these men and like Jesus. We too are to be the exact opposite of the next guys that he talks about in chapter 3. He warns about false teachers. Much like this picture shows a speaker with fingers crossed behind the back so that what is said 
is not really what's meant. It's deceptive. It's not the truth. Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 3, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. He doesn't mince words or a soft pedal. He has called these ungodly servants dogs, evil workers, mutilators of the flesh. Does that describe any preacher on television you know or teacher or, or any person that you know? Is that how you would describe anybody that you know? Yeah, uh, so-and-so, he's a dog. Yeah, and, and she's a mutilator of the flesh. And uh, yeah, he, that guy on TV, he's an evil worker. You know, I, I don't know that we would use those words to describe anybody. Why would Paul use such harsh words to describe these false teachers? The reason why they're so harsh is because what they do is so dangerous. I, I think especially in the 21st century, we Christians uh, consider doctrine as something that... Uh, professors discuss and they teach their students, but doctrine doesn't have a real importance in the Christian life. When in reality, uh, doctrine, especially the truth of the gospel, is essential to our faith. If you get the gospel wrong, then you have the whole faith wrong. And so those who preach a false gospel, those who preach something different than the truth through lies or deception or ignorance are hindering people from being saved or keeping people from the kingdom of God or keeping people from an eternity with Jesus Christ. Now, when you describe someone that's keeping someone out of heaven as evil, that's Satan. That's what Satan does through deception and lies Satan is constantly working, trying to deceive people to keep them from Jesus and keep them from heaven. And that's what these false teachers were doing. That's why Paul uses such harsh words. Well, what were they teaching? They were teaching that Gentiles, people who weren't Jewish, had to become Jewish to become Christians. That sounds confusing, probably, doesn't it? But remember, Jesus was Jewish. The all 12 apostles were Jewish. The, the first followers of Jesus were Jewish. And they had a history as a nation. They had a culture of celebrating Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles and the Festival of Lights. They had a, a culture of obeying the law of Moses. And they had an understanding of temple and sacrifice and ritual. They had all of that. In fact, they had what we call the Old Testament. They had the Bible. Well, the Gentiles that these new Christians were evangelizing and teaching, they didn't know anything about Moses. They didn't know anything about sacrifices, temples. They had never seen a Bible. They never heard of the law of Moses. They didn't know any of that, didn't have any of that cultural background. And so the question became, well, do Gentiles, those who aren't Jewish, do they need to know all that, do all that, be all that before they can become a Christian? The apostles very quickly, early on, had a big meeting and they said, no. No one has to become Jewish to become a Christian. 
Yet there were many false teachers that Paul met in a lot of his churches who were teaching that false doctrine. They were saying, you have to be circumcised. You have to follow the law of Moses. You have to follow the festivals. You have to follow the laws if you want to be a Christian. And as you can imagine, to Gentiles, they're hearing this. It's not the gospel. And also, it sounds like a burden. Why would they want to do any of that? It was hindering and keeping people from the gospel. It was also hurting people who were Christians, who had put their faith in Jesus, yet now they were hearing something different and it caused them to doubt. It caused them to wonder whether they really were in the faith. And that's dangerous too. When Christians doubt their faith, they often fall away from the Lord. So that's why they were so dangerous. And that's why he called them dogs, evil workers, and those who mutilate the flesh. I'm not going to describe circumcision to you. You can Google it if you don't know what it is. But that's why he uses the term mutilate the flesh. The reason he calls them dogs is because that's what Jewish people would often call Gentiles. So he turns it around on them. And he calls them evil workers because they're keeping people from the kingdom of God. But what did the apostles say the gospel was? Paul says it in verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Paul says we're not made righteous because of obeying the law, being circumcised, being Jewish. We are made righteous by the righteousness of Christ, and we receive that as a gift of God's grace through faith. And Paul writes in Ephesians, a familiar passage that you know well, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Paul says this is the gospel. And this is what we stand on. This is what we proclaim. And this is what we teach. If someone teaches something else, you need to be warned about it. You need to stop it in your church. You need to proclaim the truth. He says, if you allow this teaching in, it's going to divide your church. And worse than that, it's going to keep people from the Lord. This is why Paul writes about it again. We don't know if he had written previously to them about it or he had spoken to them about it in person. But it was so important that in chapter 3, he writes about it again. Now, as Paul starts to talk about these false teachers, one of the things they like to do is to brag about how Jewish they were and brag about all of their birth and their heritage and what they had. And so Paul starts to say, well, if they can brag, I can brag even more. And so he starts to brag about what he, well, not brag, but he talks about what he has done. But first he describes for us who we are. We are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. What he means is this. Circumcision was a sign that people were part of the Jewish family. We are in the family of God because we have been saved by grace through faith. Therefore, we are in the family. We are the real circumcision. We are the ones who worship in spirit, as Jesus said, would happen 
Those, God is seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, we don't worship with rituals and religion. We have a relationship with God and it's his spirit connected with our spirit that's the essence of true worship. And we are the ones who boast in Christ and not in ourselves. You see, the, the false teachers are boasting about them, themselves. Paul says we true Christians don't boast about what we've done. We boast about Jesus. We boast about what Jesus has done for us. That he died for us. That he conquered death through resurrection. That he's given us new life. That he's given us eternal life. All of our boasting is about him. And we don't boast about what we have done. And so Paul says this. I'm going to skip here. To the values that he had versus that of the false teachers and what they boasted about. See, most of us boast about our birth. You know, I was born into this family. I was born into this country. I was born into this faith. Or we boast about what we have accomplished in life. We boast about uh, the schools we've gone to, the degrees we've gotten, or the uh, things that we have done. We boast about the groups that we're part of. We boast about the reputation we have in town. Isn't that what most people in our world boast about? Boasting about what they've done, the advantages that they've had. And Paul says, if they can boast about that, I can boast even more. He says in verses 4 through 6, Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. In other words, Paul says this. They want to brag about how Jewish they are. You can't be more Jewish than me. I, I was circumcised on the eighth day as required by the law. He was born into one of the most prestigious tribes in Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, probably second only to Judah. So he was from a prestigious tribe, circumcised on the eighth day. He was a Pharisee. He went to the best schools, learned under the best teacher. In fact, he was so zealous and so extreme for the Jewish faith and the law that he was going and rounding up Christians and persecuting them and handing them over to authorities. So he is about as, he's saying, I'm as Jewish, I'm as much as a Hebrew. You can't get any more than that, than I am. Paul says, I could boast all day about the advantages I had, what I've accomplished, who I was. But he says, you know what? I'm not going to boast about any of that. This is what he says instead. He thinks about his life. And he thinks about how most people, when they look at their life, they think about all the advantages they have, all the disadvantages. They probably think of the advantages as the assets that they have and their liabilities as the things they wish they didn't have. So again, those things that we brag about, our birth, accomplishments, associations, reputation. We also look at our life and say, well, maybe 
You know, I wasn't born into a rich family, and, and I didn't have the best schools, and, and I don't have the best clubs to be in. They won't let me in those, and so we see those as negatives. Or we think about all the weaknesses that we have, all the failures that we have, and we consider those as liabilities or, or losses. And, and most people in our lives, we will look at the things that we see as assets and we want more of those and less of the other, and we live our life and value things in life and do things in life so that those assets grow and the liabilities go down. But Paul looked at life completely different. Even with everything that he could brag about, this is what he said. Everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This was how his ledger book looked. The only thing he valued in life was knowing Christ. Everything else, he considered as loss. In fact, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, zealous for his Jewish faith, persecutor of the church, all those things, and anything else he's done, he said were a big pile of poop. And he didn't use the word poop. Okay, but we're in church. I have to use a word that we can hear in church. So you think of any of the words that you can use to describe poop. And in fact, you think of the most offensive word, and that's closer to the word he was using for what he considered everything in his life other than knowing Christ. I want you to really think about that for a moment. I have, every time I've read these verses, I, I did this week as I was preparing to preach to you today. And honestly, I have to say that I'm not there yet where I could say with Paul that everything else in my life I consider is a pile of poop compared to knowing Christ. It's not that I don't want to know Christ, I do. But I also want a lot of other things in life. And this is where I, like a lot of Christians, get bogged down. Is that I will spend emotional energy, resources, time on a lot of the other things. Like accomplishments and associations and reputation. I'll spend a lot of stuff on that. Because I want that as well as knowing Christ. And what can happen then is that the time, energy, focus that I spend on knowing Christ becomes less and less and less. And on the other things, more and more and more. And then therefore, my life isn't any different than an unbeliever. Because unbelievers chase after all those other things. They don't care about knowing Christ. And that's why it's vitally important that we hear these verses again and that we understand we're 
Paul's value and his focus was. Everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Is knowing God the most important thing in your life? And we saw, talk about knowing God. It's just not knowing facts about God. And I know you know that, okay? But I want to remind you that you can know a thousand facts about President Joe Biden. You can, know, you can know about when he was born, where he was born, his favorite food, the names of his pets. You, know, you can know everything about him. But would you really know him? If you walked up to the White House and knocked on the door, would they let you in? I know Joe Biden. I know everything about him. I said, no, you don't. <laughs> he doesn't know you. You see, there's a difference between knowing facts about someone and knowing them. I would hope you would say you know your spouse and more than just facts about your spouse. And in fact, I probably know that you know your spouse because you know exactly which buttons to push to make them angry. Right? You know that, don't you? <laughs> I hope you also know what buttons to push to show how much you love them, too. Paul talks about knowing Christ in the sense of spouses knowing each other, not you knowing some facts about someone. In fact, Paul says this is how he wants to know the Lord. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from the dead. He wants to know Jesus this way. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, to be conformed to his death. In other words, really what Paul wants to do is to have a life that looks a lot like Jesus' life. I mean, Jesus. As in chapter 2, we learn how much of a servant he was. Jesus lived his life only for the will of the Father, lived it as a sacrifice for our sins, lived it as an example for us to how to live our life, lived it by dying, lived it by being resurrected. And Paul wants the same life and to know that life like Jesus lived. He wants to know that power. He wants to know that suffering. Uh, he wants to even know what it's like to be obedient to death on a cross. Don't you see this is a much deeper knowledge of God and of Jesus than knowing facts and memorizing the stories about Jesus. To be part of the power, the suffering, the obedience of our Lord. That's how much he wanted to know him. In fact, he made it a goal. Now, I know, ladies, sometimes you don't like the sports illustrations. Right? I mean, you don't even watch sports. You don't care. There's some guys like that, too. But Paul used sports illustrations all the time in his letters. So I'm sorry. Okay? He's using one here. He's talking about a goal. He's talking about, when he's talking about it, is 
the goal marker that a runner is running towards. If you've ever watched a football game, you know there is a goal line. They even call it that. It's the goal of the whole game to get the football over the goal line. So in the same way, Paul is saying his life, he values only one thing, knowing Christ. And he has a singular goal that's every moment of his life. And that is what we saw here. His goal is to know Jesus and the power fellowship of his sufferings. And this is how Paul does it. Not that I have already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. This is what he does. Paul forgets what's behind. You know, if you're running a race, especially if you're a football player running towards a goal line, you don't look back. If you look back, you get slowed down. If you look back, you get tackled. If you look back, the likelihood of you making the goal is almost zero. Paul didn't look back to his past of persecuting the church and feel ashamed to the point that it stopped him from going forward and proclaiming the gospel. Paul didn't look at his past and see all of his achievements and rest on them and say, well, I've done enough for the Lord. No, I did one missionary journey. Why do I need to do a second? Oh, I've done two of them. Why do I need to do a third? After he'd done three, he could have said, well, I'm retiring now. There's no need to do any more. No, he never had that attitude that he had done enough, that he had done a whole lot in the past. He could just stop now. He never looked back and allowed his past to hinder him and to paralyze him from serving the Lord today. So the same is true for you as a Christian, for us as a church. We should never look back and either be guilty of it so that it paralyzes us or want to stay in the past and celebrate it to the point that it paralyzes us and we can't move forward. So Paul was forgetting what was behind. He was only looking towards the goal. And as he looked towards it, he was making every effort. You see, you could be a football player, have the football, and see the goal, and only look towards it. But eh, maybe I'll kind of make a half effort towards it. You know, instead of running full speed, why don't I just kind of mosey towards it? You know, what's going to happen? If you're playing football, you're going to get smacked. That's what's going to happen. You're not going to make a goal giving it half effort, a quarter effort, a third quarter effort. You have to give full 100% sprint, every muscle, every fiber of your body trying to reach that goal. And that was what Paul was doing in his life. He was also reaching forward for that goal. If you've ever seen a football player get close to the goal line, sometimes they just jump and reach for the goal. You know, they're, they're a yard short of it. They're two yards short of it. And they're so determined to get there, they can't even wait to run across it. They have to dive across it. 
And that's the, what Paul is doing. He's reaching for it. Do you see? And then again, the, the effort, striving, reaching, full effort, and pursuing that prize that comes at the end. Paul had this as the goal of his life. And what is that prize? Well, for every Christian, the prize at the end of our life is to see Jesus. And it makes all of the labor, all of the struggle, all of the suffering, all of the hurt, everything is part of this life, especially doing all of that for the Lord. It makes it all worthwhile to finally see him. And this is what John says about that. Dear friends, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. That's the goal. And that's what every Christian will see. Jesus face to face. And we will finally be like him. And we will know who we truly are. We'll know him. But there is another prize. It's not for every Christian. And that is the reward for serving the Lord. See, there's some Christians who are moseying towards the goal line. And they're not giving it much effort. They're saved. They'll see the Lord. But they're not going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant when the Lord sees them. I mean, there may be a rebuke from the Lord. Why were you so lazy? Why didn't you take any of the opportunities? Why didn't you use any of the gifts that I gave you? What were you thinking? What were you doing? That's what you might hear from the Lord. Rather than well done, good and faithful servant, which is what Paul wanted to hear. And that's why he made every effort. That's why he was reaching towards a goal. That's why it was a singular goal, because he didn't want to be distracted by anything else. Because you know at the end of your life, whatever groups you've joined, whatever associations, whatever accomplishments, they all stay here. They don't go with you to heaven. Jesus said, lay up treasure in heaven. That is the service, the work that we do for the Lord that lasts. And Paul wants to be there and to receive that prize. So I challenge you this morning. As I've said, it's hard for me to be honest and say, I have that focus that Paul has. The value, the goal, I want it, but I also want other things. And those other things at times do distract me and hinder me from reaching that goal with full effort and full focus. So I'm challenging myself and I'm challenging you to think about the things in your life that you have to get rid of. They may be sin, which is a no-brainer. That has to be flushed down the toilet. That certainly is a pile of poop you've got to get rid of. But sometimes there's things we choose in life that are good things. Good things can distract us from the goal. We need wisdom to know when we need to choose the best things and the best way. Because Christians can be paralyzed from reaching the goal because they are choosing the good rather than the best. So pray for wisdom so that God reveals to you and then you're obedient to it what needs to be taken out of your life. So that you're not distracted, so that your focus isn't elsewhere, 
so that you can be focused on the goal. And then examine your life and be honest. How much effort are you really putting into what you claim is your goal and claim is what you value, knowing Christ? Because we can be lazy Christians who give no effort to even know the stories about Jesus, much less to know the power and the suffering and to know Jesus intimately. If we don't give it any effort, how do we expect to truly know the Lord? So be honest and allow the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the truth of your heart. And as we pray and as we respond, as we sing, let's say yes to God and be obedient. And not just say yes, knowing Christ is a good thing to value. And giving maximum effort for the goal of knowing Christ, that's a good thing. And leave. Knowing it's a good thing is not enough. Are we doing it? Let's say yes to the Lord and make sure that we are doing it as we leave today. Lord, as I have prayed, I know there are many other Christians like me that we are distracted from the goal of knowing you and serving you with everything that we have. So I do pray as I've challenged myself and my brothers and sisters. I pray for wisdom to know when we need to choose the best rather than the good. I pray for wisdom and knowing what needs to be changed and gotten rid of in my life. I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to give full effort of reaching the goal and stretching and wanting to attain, seeing you face to face and hearing from you, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray that we would obey now, Lord, as we respond to your word. And I pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.